Hello and welcome to My Classic Soul, the podcast dedicated to the very best of classic soul and R&B music. I'm Bethany Dawson and here with me is the British ambassador of soul, David Nathan, and the founder of soulmusic.com. Today we're going to be talking about Roberta Flack. So, David, I guess let's start at the beginning. How did you get to hear Roberta for the first time? Uh, well, first, hello, Beth, Bethany. Oh, hello. <laughs> Good to speak to you. Um, yeah, Roberta Flack. Uh, I became aware of Roberta Flack like uh, I, probably most people outside of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, and I'll, I'll say more about that in a moment. Uh, with the release of her first Atlantic album, uh, appropriately called First Take, and that was released in 1969. I'm 99% sure it was released in Britain at the same time as it was in, in, in the U.S. Uh, and that was how I became aware of her. And interestingly enough, at that time, there were no hit songs on there. It was uh, it was a new album by a new artist and um, didn't know much about her, to be honest with you, at that, at that particular point. And uh, the rumour has it that she recorded her debut album, First Take, reportedly in 10 hours to complete all eight songs. Yeah, that's a little bit misleading, actually. Uh, what, what happened was, uh, so let me let me set the stage a little bit for you about, uh, about that. Uh, prior to um, uh, doing the, uh, the actual sessions for the first album, she had actually spent time in November of 1968 uh, in a studio in New York. And over a course of three days, she recorded something like 28 songs. Uh, just her sitting at a piano and the per- uh, with a, I think, a bass player and a drummer. And the purpose of that was for the producer of the album, Joel Dawn, to um, work with her in selecting what to what to record because those songs were actually from the repertoire that she had been um, performing on a regular basis at a club in Washington D.C. called Mr. Henry's. Anyway, so there was the three days of recording in November, and then when it came to the actual um, sessions, which were in February of 1969, uh, they were three days, and it was it wasn't ten straight hours. It was probably ten hours over three days. Um, there were f- like three songs the first day. I think four songs the next day and a uh, couple of songs the last day. So it's a little bit, um, yeah, that's kind of stretching it. <laughs> she didn't sit there for 10 hours. <laughs> well, we're all here to learn. This is true. This is true. <laughs> so the album came out in 1969, but Correct. it didn't actually reach number one on the pop and R&B charts until 1972. Yeah, that's that. the whole story of that is really fascinating. So... Um, she, the album came out in 1969, as we, as we just mentioned, and, um, it didn't actually go on any charts at all until 1970, until January of 1970. Uh, it was what you call a sleeper album in as much as it, it didn't have any hits and it wasn't, uh, because of the kind of artist that Roberta was and is, it, it wasn't like an immediate it wasn't, you know, it wasn't designed to like, oh, let's have a hit, you know. And and in fact, the whole point of the album was, I think, to to showcase her talent and to show her virtuosity as a as a singer, interpreter of song, and accompanying herself on the piano. 
And um, the the gap between 1970 and 1972 uh, was really as a result of uh, the fact that uh, the actor and director Clint Eastwood uh, chose uh, one of the songs, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, for a film that he was uh, directing called Play Misty for Me. And uh, so the the mythology goes... Uh, Clint was driving down an L.A. freeway and he heard the first time ever I saw your face in 1971, actually. And um, he, I don't know if he pulled over, because I must have pulled over, because back then there were no cell phones. I guess he maybe got home and caught, he must have gotten home and got in touch with someone at Atlantic, got Roberta's number and called her and said... um, you know, I want to use your song from your album in, in my film. And uh, supposedly she uh, jaw dropped. She did really Clint Eastwood. He said, yeah, yeah, anyway. So the, the, the bottom line, you know, offered her a certain amount of money to, for use of the, of the song. I don't know how that would have worked back then. But anyway, the point being that um, uh, he said, do you have any other questions? And she said, well, yeah, actually, I would like to record it again I, I think the version I have on the album is too slow and he said no it's not and then the <laughs> album the song was in the film and then Atlantic uh, you know, when the film came out they released a, a, a edited version of the, of the album track and uh, I know it's such a cliche to say the rest is history but kind of it is <laughs> and that's yeah in between and in between Roberta had already been recording she didn't it wasn't like oh well the first album now let me stop she actually had recorded uh, I think like she recorded an album called Chapter 2 which she began recording in 1970 then there was another album called Quiet Fire and then of course there was the album she did with uh, Donny Hathaway so that was all happening in the me- in between uh, her having this kind of surprise hit Busy woman. Yeah. Well, yeah, to stick on uh, First Take, because it's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, um, the newly relaunched soulmusic.com, which obviously you founded, um, is going to be... Uh, they're doing a deluxe reissue, right? Correct, of the album correct. On two CD and one LP. That's correct. Um, and the set features a remastered version of the original album on both vinyl and CD, along with a disc of rare and unreleased recordings. Can you talk us through some of... Yeah, and that's actually what I was alluding to. So, the, so what's on the um, the unreleased recording disc is um, twelve of the demos from 1968. So when she was in the studio for those three days, um, literally just doing all the things that were part of her live repertoire. Uh, so those twelve um, have miraculously survived because for a long time, no one at the Atlantic. Uh, tape library could find them i i looked for them people looked for them we could not find them and finally um i can't remember how this came about but somebody found a box and lo and behold they were mislabeled or something but anyway the bottom line is that 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 these 12 songs are from those three days of recording and uh we can talk about some of the songs for sure, but what, what probably one of the most interesting aspects of it is that in listening to what would essentially be an audition, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to call it a, a, an audition, but it was an audition of the songs, not an audition of Roberta, and uh, to choose what to put on this first album. 
so um uh, obviously working with the producer who had signed her to a, to Atlantic Joel Dawn they went through um all of these there was about 28 songs in all um out of which uh the all but one song came from those demo sessions. It wasn't actually the recording they used, but the demos of those songs, so to speak, um, uh, were all ended up on the album. The one song that was not part of those sessions was actually the first time ever I saw your face. That was not part of any of the demos she did in 1968. Uh, working with uh, other of the folks at uh, Rhino in, in, in Los Angeles and her management, uh, Suzanne and Joan, we thought that, well... It's kind of silly to put the demos of the songs that were on the album as part of the reissue. So the songs that are on there are things that people have never heard before because these are songs that were never released in any form uh, during her recording career. And uh, what's so amazing about them is they they cover such an incredible um, diversity of of material. So... um, you know, there's some really uh, up-tempo, jazzy things like uh, a song called This Could Be the Start of Something Big, which was uh, a kind of like a jazz standard or pop standard, you could say, by the time she recorded it in 1968. And then there's an amazing version of To Sell With Love. It doesn't sound anything like the Lulu version. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Lulu. Love Lulu. <laughs> and um, But To Sell With Love, you know, it, she turns uh, it into like this eight-minute piece um, and that, you know, even that just talking about that one song gives us an example of what uh, we would say was the, at the heart of Roberta's uh, artistry is that she could take um, any kind of song and just reinterpret it, transform it into a almost like an opus. I mean, you know, because To Sell With Love is probably about three minutes long as the original song and to, you know, to really find a different kind of approach to it and put some meaning into it that, or, or to bring something to it that wasn't already there. So that's an example. Of, so this could be the start of something is, I think, the first track. And then the last of the 12 is um, To Sail With Love. And in between, there's this whole kind of mash of different different kinds of things that are really, uh, it's just fascinating to listen to. But the thing I want to say that's really amazing is listening to her voice in 1968, it's barely changed over decades. I mean, it's still the identifiable voice and still has a lot of the same kind of purity and the kind of, it's kind of like a crystal kind of voice, you know? Uh, and sometimes it's not. But I mean, the point being that that, that tone is still there. It's like, wow. Absolutely. What I really like about Roberta is that there's no, I don't think there's any gimmicks. No. It's just straight, raw talent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some particular songs on, on, and we'll talk some more about the demos and that, you know, um, I I call them demos because they don't really sound like demos. I mean, in fact, they sound like finished recordings. Um, so let's call them the auditions, the audition songs, <laughs> the, 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 the songs the that were auditioned, auditioned. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a couple of other things in there. There's a, there's a, a quite well-known jazz, uh, instrumental standard, standard instrument, whatever, called Afro Blue, which is by, uh, was really by a, a percussionist called Mongo Santa Maria and has been done many times by different people and, um, uh, with lyrics by a, a, a 
singer, songwriter, poet named Oscar Brown Jr. And, you know, it's completely different from anything on first take. It's very percussive. It's very rhythmic. I mean, not like there's no rhythm on first take, but I'm just saying it's a particularly rhythmic track. Then she also does a version of um, the Motown, then would have been only a year old uh, uh, hit, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. And Ain't No Mountain High Enough in 1968, which is a year after she recorded it, had uh, had been a hit for... um, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, and written by Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson, and had not yet been reinterpreted by Diana Ross, and was just a, like a great Motown hit. But and 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 Roberta just brings something to it. It's, it, it's it was designed as a duet, so of course, so hearing her sing it by herself, it's kind of interesting. you know, it still works. And um, so there's that, and and what else is on there? Um, there's a, a, a real uh, old blues uh, called um, Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out. And that was originally uh, a song that was popularized in the 20s, like 1920s, I think, uh, a little bit before my time, uh, by Bessie Smith. And um, great blues, um, female blues pioneer and uh so there's that but the thing that i think i think i I wanted to really make um to emphasize is that there's all these different kinds of songs all you know interpreted by the one this one performer i mean it's really amazing to think that someone could literally go from to so with love to afro blue i mean they're so different and yet the common thread is her and how she brings, I, I always want to call it, she flaccicizes it, but then it kind of sounds like <laughs> I'm a big well, fan of that term. Yes, well, we can't call it, we can't, can't, we can't, we can't call it Roberta, R- Roberta eyes it. It's a bit, that's a bit. No, I'm into flaccicize. All right, flaccicize. She flaccicized it. That might become a new slogan, you know? Exactly. You heard it first. You, heard, you certainly did. Yes, yes. We're going to take a quick break, but please stay tuned because we will be right back. Now available for pre-order exclusively at soulmusic.com, the 50th anniversary edition of First Take, Roberta Flack's 1969 debut album for Atlantic Records. First Take has been remastered and expanded to a two-CD, one-LP box set, featuring the original eight-track album plus 16 bonus tracks. First Take is a beautiful soul-jazz hybrid that includes the number one hit song, The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face, and includes famous jazz luminaries such as Ron Carter, Benny Powell, and Selden Powell as sidemen. Featured in the 1971 Clint Eastwood movie Play Misty For Me, the popularity of The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face helped drive her debut album to number one on both the Billboard album chart and the R&B album chart. Newly remastered and expanded, this deluxe 50th anniversary edition includes 16 bonus tracks, 12 of which are previously unreleased, totaling nearly an hour of never-before-heard Roberta Flack music. Also included in this deluxe set is the original vinyl album, newly remastered and pressed on 140-gram vinyl. It's accompanied with a detailed essay by noted soul historian David Nathan, all beautifully packaged in a 12x12 hardback book. 
Roberta Flack's first take, the 50th anniversary edition, is now available for pre-order exclusively at soulmusic.com. Hi, welcome back. I'm here with David Nathan and today we're talking about Roberta Flack. So that's a jam-packed full disc of demos or the audition tapes as we'll we'll call them. Can you talk us a bit more through the actual tracks on the album itself? Yes, absolutely. Um, As I I, I said earlier, you know, what made it so unique was that it wasn't really, there was nothing in there designed to be a radio-friendly hit single so there are these eight pieces of music, and I, I'm, I'm referring to them particularly that way because of the fact that Roberta's training was as a classical pianist. So you could really authentically call them pieces. And, um, you know, she it was just her and um, uh, three musicians, guitarist, drummer, and uh, bass player, which is, uh, you know, also quite a unique setting for recording. Um, and uh, again... The material runs such a gamut. I mean, the, the first uh, track is a, a very um, kind of like a social political commentary song called Compared to What? And it had previously been recorded by Les McCann. And Les McCann was the uh, jazz keyboard player who actually first heard Roberta and, and at, at the club she was performing at in D.C., and uh, called his then producer at Atlantic and said, "You got to hear, hear this woman, Roberta. You got to hear her. You got to hear her." And that's what led to her contract with Atlantic. So Les McCann had previously done this song called "Compared to What," and it's very interesting because even though the song was, um, you know, really from 1966, actually I think was the year. In listening to it, the the lyrics are almost scarily as as. Um, appropriate now because they talk about well let's not go into the politics but just say that it has some political um relevance it had political relevance in 1966 and it has political relevance today uh because it's specifically in 1966 talking about the american president but we won't go too deep into that but anyway compared to what um just about you know Life and, and, and how life was changing in the 60s. Um, and then there's um, a beautiful, beautiful song sung in Spanish called Angelitos Negros. That's bad for this. Oh, Angelitos, wow. Got to tap, it's better so, than I could do. Tap on the <laughs> back for that. Wow. Anyway, uh, it, and which, is, which translates in English as Black Angels. And it's. Um, uh, it was it was originally from uh, the, the this the song itself comes from a film a Mexican film from 1948, and the the premise of the song, which she sings entirely in Spanish, is that uh, painters would only ever paint white angels or white, actually virgins, is that in the original um, um, description of the, or translation of the song. And uh, so the writer of the song is is asking, why don't you ever paint? Why don't you ever paint black angels? And so it was kind of you know it's very beautifully delivered, and, and I mean this her performance on that on, on the record. And um, let's see, I don't, 
could go through every single one. Let's pick a couple more. Uh, so, of course, we've talked about first time ever I saw your face, which is a is just really this incredible tender. Um, just, I mean, it's almost like you feel like she's caressing the lyric, and it's really, it's beautiful. It's just a very tender, beautiful song. Um, there's a, a song called "I I Told Jesus," which is a the origins of which are a little bit hard to to figure out. It, it's you know, it's considered a spiritual, um, but it really talks about faith. I mean, that's at the essence of what the song's about. Um, there's trying times, which is a, again, also applicable to uh, as much as when it was recorded in 1969 as it is in 2019, sad to say. And you listen to the lyrics, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about, you know, the fact that... Um, it's talking about man's inhumanity to man. I mean, these are things that are as true, unfortunately, now as they were then. Um, while we've had many changes in the 50 years between, you know, there are human issues that are still human issues. And so the song is very, is, is very timely, even though we'd never have imagined that it would have been as timely then as it is now, uh, timely now as it was then. And then the song that... Um, is probably the most dramatic and emotive song of the whole album, is what closes the album on side two. And it's called Ballad of the Sad Young Men. And um, I don't know how people would have interpreted it back then. It came from a play, uh, a Broadway musical, um, which didn't last very long. But the song itself is... uh, it's very, very moving and poignant, and it's about, essentially, it's about gay men uh, sitting at a bar and, um, you know, how they, I'm not going to recite all the lyrics, but just to say, it's just it's this kind of like, there's this just melancholy, and, and, and it's just, oh, wow. It's really hard to, to, without playing it, it's hard to talk about it, but sh- the song really captures a certain kind of... Uh, sadness of of a time period when um you know gay men had to hide essentially and um you know looking for love so to speak wasn't how it is now and uh the thing was and if you think about the time period that's a very that's very revolutionary for 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 an artist to record a song like that this is prior to all that's happened in terms of rights of any kind since I mean it's just very yeah I mean really and the thing that I I, I, you know can can say that I I remember when Roberta came to England for the first time and I'm not sure if it was on her first visit or the second one but she performed at the Royal Albert Hall uh, in front of a packed one so it was after the first time ever I saw your face and she included that song and she talked about the meaning of the song she didn't just sing it she explained to people what it was about and you could literally hear a pin drop i mean it was just and people were just like wiping away tears because it was so beautifully delivered and it doesn't end in a the song doesn't end in like a bad way it just it leaves leaves one in a question so to speak it's a really beautiful way to end an album and kind of revolutionary yeah, the impact and the importance of that in 1969, I personally can't even 
mm-hmm. imagine. So, and just to, to say that other people recorded it subsequently. Shirley Bassey recorded it. Uh, Petula Clark recorded it. Interesting. I've never heard a version, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but it became like a. I don't think it didn't become a standard, but it became obviously a part, important part of Roberta's repertoire. Yeah, and you um, just mentioned about hearing Roberta talk. So, do you have any? Did you did you meet Roberta? Do you have any personal memories? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> I actually, I mean, I saw her perform quite a few times before I ever met her. And um, the first time we actually did a, a sit down interview was in 1977 when I lived in New York, and um, she, I can't remember which album she had out at the time, but anyway, we did this interview, we set up by the person at Atlantic Records in New York, which is where she lived and where I lived, and um, I was a little bit nervous about it because she had a little bit of a reputation at that time for being a, a little difficult in terms of, well, yeah, she could, she, you know, before we used the term term diva she she was considered to be one and so you know i went up to her uh, to where she lived she lived in a building called the dakota which was and her neighbor her neighbors were john lennon and yoko ono in the same on the same floor actually as far as as, <laughs> as i recall i didn't meet them but anyway so i went up there was, she had this massive big condo in the you know it was like a massive the dakota was like really expensive building really 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 expensive anyway uh so i go in there and you know she you know sat in the living room in her living room with a massive big grand piano there and she had these little dogs running around and anyway so we started doing this interview and you know, was, she was really cool, really easy to talk to. And I was like, well, who is that? You know, I mean, this isn't the person I was expecting. So I felt comfortable enough to tell her. I said, you know, as we got to the end, I said, thank you so much. It was really great. It was really great interviews for British magazine, Blues and Soul. And she said, oh, you're welcome. And we, you know, we found out we were saying birth, birth signs, so that kind of helped as well. And then Aquarians, Aquarians. Anyway, <laughs> plug for Aquarians. Anyway, she, um, um, I said, can I, can I tell you something? She said, what? I said, well, you know, before I, I, I got here, I was a little bit nervous. I wasn't sure because, you know, I heard that you weren't always necessarily easy to have to do interviews and didn't do that many. I said, in fact, I, I said, really, what do people say about me? <laughs> That's a brave question. And I said, well, I said, well, I, I was told you were a little bit of a B word. Beep. <laughs> and she said, really? I'm like, yeah. That was very brave of yeah, me. I, I mean, yeah, yeah. I would have lied. But she <laughs> would, no, but she was, she really, you know, that set up. Uh, us to do subsequent conversations and interviews and stuff. Um, she, she, uh, there's so, so much I can say about Roberta. She, she's one of the things that's really important to know is she's a music. She is yes a recording artist, yes a performer, and she's a, an intelligent musician. So she speaks the language of musicians, and she's also she has a kind of she has a the the intel a certain level of intelligence that was a result of her, I guess a result of anything in particular, but she, she was a teacher and there's a whole kind of dimension to her conversations that's quite different from um, 
you know, some of the other artists I would interview and not in a bet, but just different, you know. And, and, and so we had some really great conversations over the years about music, about uh, life. I mean, um, and I, and I'm, I am going to share, which probably which definitely wouldn't be in the liner notes, but for somebody to share with you that uh, I had started at some point in that time period, this late 70s, during the 80s and, and, and on, I started to uh, develop interest in recording myself. So I recorded and done some demos and stuff like that. And, but, but I want to share with you a quick story of probably one of the most amazing moments of my entire life. Um, I uh, was visiting New York at that point. I had moved to L.A. in the 80s, 90s. And um, she invited me to come to her uh, her still place in the Dakota, and uh, she said, "You know, I've been listening to some of your demos, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'd like to talk to you about them." I was like, "Okay, all right." So we talked on the phone, and so I went to her to the to, to where she lived, and she said, "All right, well, so I'd like to like to hear you sing, you know, at the piano. I'm going to play the piano." I'm like, "Okay," and so I want to hear how you phrase. I'm like, oh my god! Like, talk about, <laughs> and I wasn't. She, not, I was not prepared for that. So, she said, all right. So she says, well, what, do, what should we do? I said, well, let's do a song that you know that I know. So we did a, 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 an old standard called "Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered." And Classic. She, yes, I know that one. Yes, and she started playing. And she, you know, what key? I was like, oh, I think it's this key. So we tried the keys and we found the key. And so we got, she's listening and she's like, okay, okay. And then we get to this one point and she says, and in the song there's the word cling. Uh, I'll I'll sing to her each spring to her and long for the day I'll cling to her. And I don't like the word cling and I don't like the meaning of clinging. (laughs) I don't want to cling to anyone. I don't want anyone clinging to me. Anyway, let's not go into that. The point being, she said, well, you can't. David, she said, "Listen, here's the thing: if you can't, if you can't own what the writer is saying, if you can't, you know, then you shouldn't sing the song." Wow! So if you have that much of a reaction to that word, then you know, don't do the song. I'm like, yeah. And so I, she said, "Well, let's try it again." So then, I, then cling became cling. And so I'm like, <laughs> wow! And that moment is. You know, I mean, I mean, how? I mean, she didn't have to do any of that. She wasn't about to sign me to Atlantic. <laughs> Imagine life lessons with Roberta. Man, I, and, but that is, and I want to say something about this. That's who who she's been for many, many, many people. She's been an advocate of education. I mean, also, you know, which is very relevant in one of her background singers in the in the uh, early eighties, late seventies, early eighties was a gentleman by the name of Luther Vandross. And he toured with her and, you know, recorded in the studio with her doing backgrounds and stuff, but mostly on the road. And she, um, at one point, she fired him. And he was like, he said, she said, I'm firing you because you need to go out and get your own record deal. 
I'm into Roberta. She's empowering. She, 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 she really, really is. I mean, you know, she, she hasn't made that many albums over the years. I mean, she isn't like someone who recorded and did a new album every year. So there's big gaps in between. But that's because she was always very clear about what she did. She didn't just want to put any old thing out. And uh, you know, and her career's been through some amazing, you know, rejuvenation with because uh, the Fuji's did uh, "Killing Me Softly," which was the song that she was very much associated with. She's also well, not just associated with. She was the first one to, well, she wasn't the first one to do it, but she was the one who brought it to you know international fame. Um, and of course, her duets with Donny Hathaway, "Where's Love," "The Closer I Get to You." I mean, her. While she might have had a, a massive uh, output in terms of recordings, what you can say is you can look at all the Roberta Flack uh, catalog and see that there's something great in each and every album. Okay, so David, talk me through your top three essential tracks for people wanting to uh, listen to Roberta for the first time. Okay, that's relatively easy. Uh, I guess the first one would be Where is the Love, which is a duet with uh, Donny Hathaway from 1972. Uh, the song has been done by several other people over the years. as a duet has been sampled a lot. Um, Where is the Love is beautiful. Um, yeah. Where is the love you said you'd give to me soon as you were free? Mm, anyway. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, uh, Killing Me Softly with this song, which um, was not actually a... Uh, Roberta didn't do the original version of that song. Uh, supposedly, as mythology tells us, uh, she heard it on a, uh, a plane, right? And it was came on one of those... You know, when, when you're on a plane back in the day, you used to be able to turn on certain channels and hear the airline's music playlist, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And she heard this song by a, a, sing, a singer called Laurie Lieberman. And um, by the time she got off the plane, she'd already like figured out how she wanted to do it. And Killing Me Softly became like a massive, massive hit. And of course, for a whole other generation, um, they know it as uh, through the Fugees and Lauren Hill, and um, and in fact, um, Roberta appears, I think, in the video that they did of the song. Yeah, so she's familiar. She's she's become familiar to another generation from that song. So, cleaning me softly, where's the love? And then, I, I would say, feel like making love only because it it's just got the it's got this kind of like groove and, and flavor to it that's uh you know walk strolling in the park <laughs> i think it's a, I, I, when i when i listen to it i think of i do actually funnily enough think of like a summer park yeah well the song you know roberta lived in new york and i think the songwriter uh eugene mcdaniels i think he lived in new york too i'm not sure if he did but anyway the point, I think you were talking about Central Park. I don't know, because I lived in New York, so I know walking through, strolling through, strolling in the park, watching winter turn to spring. I mean, you know, that's poetry, man. That is really poetry. And it takes someone to interpret poetry it, it, when, it's, when it's musical poetry. And that song does, it definitely gives you visuals. Definitely, definitely. I have a, one other personal favorite, which is not, as you said, three, but... 
I'm going to choose one bonus of the... Bonus track. <laughs> your bon bonus, bonus, bonus track, bonus track, which is from the album Feel Like Making Love, and it's a song called Mr. Magic. And um, it, it was actually originally an instrumental by Grover Washington Jr., and I can't remember who had... Well, I, I, I have to look at the credits to remember who added the lyrics. But it's one of those songs that it's just very... Uh, Mm, it's moody, it's pensive, it's kind of like, uh, you know, lyric line, you know, is Mr. Magic, where have you gone? And then the next line is, ooh, you turn me on. <laughs> Sorry, X-rated, not really, close. But that's, uh, you know, well, let's, let's say one more thing about Roberta. You know, you could say she's a serious singer and she's, a, you know, classically trained and, you know, all those things are true and, you know, there's a certain gravitas about her, and there's a whole sultry kind of something like that. Like feel feel like making love is not is not a you know it, it's sultry. So it was Mr. Magic, and so she's got that part of herself which is which I like. I mean, that's like you know, this is a full person. You know, it isn't just like a classically trained pianist. Nothing wrong with classically trained pianist, but you know what I'm saying. There's an, there's, she's a serious musician, and she's also a human being with that whole other dimension. Oh, personality. Yeah. With all of her work, she is coming up to get the Lifetime Achievement Award in this year's Grammys on the April uh, on April eighteenth. Correct. Yeah. By the time this airs, the Gram the actual Grammys themselves will have uh, happened because that's a few days from now, on January the twenty sixth. And um, fortunately, the the portion of the show that is related to the Lifetime Achievement Awardees happens in April. So um, although Roberta is apparently going to be at the, uh, well, she is not apparently, she's at the Grammys this weekend in a rare a, a rare appearance, um, she uh, will actually be celebrated fully and completely in April uh, along with some other notaries. And uh, she, uh, it, it's just really well-deserved and, and in one sense long overdue. I mean, this is someone who's, you, know, you said this is the 50th anniversary of her first album, um, and, and sh her impact on music has been, you know, multi-generational. Absolutely. And it's not actually too far away from the 50th anniversary where she's the only solo artist to win uh, a Grammy Award for Record of the Year two consecutive years, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's really... It's, it's you know an I'm, achievement. And also I think it's really important... Uh, that people get their um, get their props, as in propers, as in res re respect, recognition, and so on, while they're still here. I mean, you know, sad to say, you know, many people who never get to find out the impact they've had because they're not here anymore. And it's great for Roberta to get this now, so she can she can tell, she can she can, she gets that kind of reaction from her peers and and from from media. I mean, it's just really great to see her being honoured uh, in her lifetime. Absolutely, and the influence she's obviously had on modern day music is it's still happening today. Yeah, I'm 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 you know who who comes to mind immediately for me is Alicia Keys. Because obviously keys keyboard player, yeah, you know. But that's one of the people who immediately comes to mind as as part of the tradition of um, of singer 
singers accompanying themselves. You know, there's others, of course, in the same league, like Nina Simone, of course, was a contemporary of, of Roberta's in as much as they, uh, they both actually came from North Carolina, uh, both studied classical music. There's an age difference. Nina's a lot older. Uh, and, um, yeah, but there, there's this tradition and, and um, you know, in some ways that tradition ha- hasn't kept up. There are not, there's, not, there's not a plethora of male or female performers who also accompany themselves on the piano. Mm-hmm. It's a rare, it's a rare concept. I, mean, I can think of a few people like John Legend on, on occasion and Brian McKnight on occasion and people on occasion but not consistently. And, and Alicia Keys is, is probably the female artist that I think of um, – as probably continuing that tradition, the tradition of Roberta and Nina. Well, even even away from not necessarily musical influence, but I know Roberta Flax uh, referred to in songs by Fall Out Boy and Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh-huh. it's it's just the opposite end of the uh-huh. spectrum. Yeah. And people forget how much music can influence and touch people of any absolutely on, across the board. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's really great to to see her see see this happening now. That's about it for this episode of My Classic Soul. Please join us again and we would love it if you could leave us a rating and a review on your favourite podcast platform. Also, make sure to follow My Classic Soul on Facebook and visit us at soulmusic.com where you can exclusively buy the limited edition deluxe reissue of First Take. Thank you for listening. I'm Bethany Dawson.